Welcome to True Stories from Tinseltown. I have a guest all the way from Scotland today, and he's a goodie. His name is Brian Hennan, and he is Scottish. I love the accent. I love everything about that. How are you, Brian? I'm very good. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Delighted. Big honors. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, he has a 60s. I'll link you up with it. He has this really great 60s blog where he just, but he also sees new movies and he reviews those as well. But, um, and he also has some great books. I'll link you up with that. And um, today, Brian, we are going to talk about the making of the Misfits, right? Behind the scenes, yeah. the Misfits. Yeah. Which was a really good film. It was made. In 1961, or was it made in 60? In 61. Uh-huh. And um, if you haven't seen it, you know, I haven't seen it in a long time, Brian, so when I knew you were coming on, I had to see it again. I remember when I first saw it, I was very young, you know, young, not with enough life experience to really sit there and get the whole thing. And I really liked it. I thought it was really a very good movie. Do you like it? Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a movie that a lot of people see when they are young and don't like it because it's not a typical Gable or Monroe film. No. And then when they see it much later on, they think, wow. That's what, that was me. ever make this movie. Right, and it was amazing. It's for them to play these characters, not the characters you'd expect them to play. A really great movie. And, yeah. and the whole theme of it. The whole theme and the Misfits, the whole name. Um, and they were just a really great crew. You could just yeah. totally believe that all these people were who they were playing. And yeah. Clark Gable thought that was his best role, and I'm going with him on that. I thought so, too. I think that I haven't seen all Clark's movies, but of all the movies that I've seen, I think he was the best in this one. Yeah, he, he, thought, he, he thought this was his best movie. That's what they gone with the wind. Uh, yeah, he didn't really have, you know, there was the music, the sweeping stuff, and all that other stuff. And he didn't, you know, he was like that, you know, dimpled dude, and it, he wasn't that, he, he was a complex character, but it didn't seem like he was really a complex character, whereas this one, you knew yeah, he was very... This is a real, this is a real complex uh, story. Yes, so it was and, nitty... And he was lucky to get, kind of, get there, get there in the end, because effectively it was a perfect storm of a production. Yes, so why don't we start talking about the production, and you want to start. We've got this. Okay, why don't you yes, give the so, general so intro? Oh, here we go. Go on. Yeah, so, so basically, um, in, in terms of cast, everybody thought that Marilyn Monroe and Montgomery Clift would be, would be the problems, uh, both having uh, well-known um, addictions. Um, in, in point of fact, although some of that did occur, um, the situation was exacerbated because from, uh, for reasons that nobody did expect, namely uh, from screenwriter 
Miller, who was uh, Monroe's husband, a very inexperienced producer called Frank Taylor. Uh, John Houston was ill, and there was outbreaks of fire uh, in the vicinity. And there was various production delays, um, and also there was a controversy at the end over a, a projected nude scene um, by Marlon Monroe. So basically the movie came about because Arthur Miller was in Reno, in Nevada, um, ironically getting a divorce in order to mar marry uh, Marlon Monroe. And when he was there, he came into contact with a couple of cowboys. And he got so friendly with them that they took him up into the hills to see how, what the kind of work they did as modern cowboys. And he turned that story that he'd observed into a short story for Esquire magazine that he called The Mustangs. Um, and then he decided it would make a good film, so he wrote a screenplay. And he sent it to John Houston, the director, um, because uh, Houston had directed uh, Marlon Monroe in our first picture, The Asphalt Jungle. But more importantly, he felt that uh, Houston had looked after him. And Houston had gone out of his way pr before Marlon Monroe had a screen career to give her a screen test. And if you had a screen test in those days that showed what you could do, it kind of got around the problem of having to sleep your way into movies, which was very much... Oh, yeah. Happened in Hollywood at the time, as you, as you know. It still happens now. It still happens now. Um, and uh, on the asphalt jungle, she was extremely nervous at being her first film. And he told her that anybody who was worth a damn was always nervous when they acted. And that kind of put her at her ease. So kind of these things um, um, Arthur Miller remembered. So he sent the script to John Houston, who was living in Ireland at the time. Houston liked it. The pair of them got together and worked more on the script. Houston he, he initially wanted to film it in Mexico because effectively he was a tax exile. And if he worked in America, this, this went against him. But eventually he agreed to film it in, in Nevada where it was set. Gable, interestingly enough, wasn't the first choice. Yes, I read that. The main role. And they sent it to Bob Mitchell. But his agent didn't even show it to him, so <laughs> effectively he was he was deemed to have turned it down, and then it found its way to uh, to Clark Gable. So he had never seen it because they said he he didn't like the script and they rewrote it for him. And by the time um, he got it, it was too late. Yeah, he was doing yeah, another it was film. Kind of, uh, it, all of these things were kind of rewritten. When you, once you get a, a all scripts are rewritten for the star. Um, so once you get your star on board, you, you, you tailor it um, to suit the, the star in whatever way. Um, but the, the, the thing about this film was that it was incredibly expensive in relation to the cast. More than half the budget went to the cast, which was pretty unusual in those days. I gave it $750,000, um, which made him the second highest uh, paid actor in America at the time. Who was numero uno? Uh, Elizabeth Taylor? $300,000. Who did? Another 400 if it hit all its budget targets, its uh, revenue targets. Mm -hmm. John Houston was getting 300000 which was a colossal sum for a director in those days. Arthur Miller got a record sum for a screenplay, and Montgomery Cliff was paid out 200 grand as well. So it was like a huge amount of money to be giving to the, to the stars. So they really, it really had to work. Yeah, uh, and. The stars they had. This whole thing and was. The problem they had was they couldn't film it when they wanted. 
originally was scheduled to start shooting in September 1959, but then Clark Gable's movie that he was filming with Sophia Loren, mm-hmm. it happened in Naples. That that went over uh, over schedule, and so it was postponed until March the following year. But then the actor strike came along, and that postponed it again, and eventually it only went before the cameras in July um, of that year. Uh, July the 18th but the problem with that was that Marlon Monroe had only just finished shooting Let's Make Love on July the 1st mm-hmm. so she didn't really have much of a break between the finishing of one film and the shooting of another plus she wanted so, to be, she so got involved with what's his name, Eve's uh, Montan and she loved, she wanted him to leave senior, uh, well, his wife that yeah. was the other thing, she was having an affair with him she yeah. him in the cast <laughs> And he also, she also wanted him to leave his wife. He had no intention of leaving his wife. Never. He got away so, with everything with her. Why would he leave her? Best of both worlds. Yeah, yeah. Well, just, you know, he, he obviously just saw it as a, as a you know, on set. A fling, yeah. The kind of thing that she wasn't really expecting from somebody who clearly kind of was sympathetical uh, with her. So it made things pretty difficult. Mm-hmm. Of course, given that Arthur Miller had written this movie with his wife especially in mind, hoping that we'd give her a lift up in dramatic terms in Hollywood, it was kind of ironic, but that, that by the time the movie started, um, the marriage was, was already deep in trouble. Um, because even though, you know, theoretically she had three weeks off, but there's all that time was spent in costume fittings and photographic tests and all this stuff. Yeah, and she didn't really get a break and, you know, having marital marital problems. She just came to this movie not really um, herself. Um, She was already addicted to to pills, pills to wake up, pills to go to sleep. Um, She's had affairs, so, you know, the the film that was written to save their marriage was probably not going to do that at all. And the other problem was was actually having Arthur Miller on set all the time. Because that doesn't usually happen. Husbands husbands didn't go to sets, you know, and kind of... And screenwriters, they they don't either, right? Following Richard Burton everywhere he went for fear that he would fancy somebody. And, and uh, but it was equally it was really unheard of for a screenwriter to be on this set. You wrote the film, you, you handed it in. It was you never you never did anything else. The the director took it over, and that was that. If any changes were made, somebody else was usually called in to make the changes. So Miller's presence on set, which should have helped the production, actually you know got in the way of the whole thing. So it was kind of a very different um, scenario. Yeah, probably upsetting. Anticipated. Yeah. Can I ask you this one thing, Brian? No. Clark, I really, you know, I think Robert Mitchum would have been fine, but Clark just had that craggy face, that been there, done that, that worn, and that my dreamboat guy Mitchum did not have that yet and uh, I think yeah, he was I think, perfect I think you're right there I don't think Mitchum had that lived in quality no he didn't have those those things that just were etched all over Clark's face yeah. but he was 25 pounds overweight before yeah. he started the yeah, film yeah that's right and he, he was one of the he was one of the problems because although they were worried about uh, Marlon Monroe um, Gable failed his uh, first medical because he was so overweight from putting on the weight in Italy. 
and then he had to pass it a couple of weeks later before they, they could start. Um, so they had kind of, you know, the too many problematic uh, people in the cast. Um, possibly these days somebody may have said, well, hold on a minute, that's too much like a tinderbox, and, and maybe we'll stop. So, so uh, for Monroe, um, John Houston adjusted the, the starting date, starting time every day by an hour because she was notoriously late so would she show up at 11? <laughs> if he said it at 10, would she show up at 11 o'clock? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as you know, she was still relying on, on her acting coach, Paula Strasberg, yes. um, for her self-confidence. And it was kind of one thing to have a, an acting coach who might have been on, sitting on the sidelines and maybe you spoke to them quietly. But having Strasberg there in front of her would be kind of broadcast to the entire crew how insecure that she, that she was. Uh, and Arthur Miller was getting on her nerves because he was trying to throw his weight around as a screenwriter, which was a very foolish thing to do. And obviously things were getting a bit uptight already because the night before her first scene, she almost had over, an overdose. Oh, wow. Yeah, and was very clearly very nervous. And she was kind of getting into that state where she couldn't really do anything unless she knew exactly what she was going to do. So there was a famous scene where she just had to cross the road and she couldn't do it. She didn't know what her motivation was. I that. just to your motivation is to cross the road without getting knocked down. But that's true. That, that it's so simple. She was doing it. She, she managed to do it. It's so but simple, she, right? This was, the, this was the film where she had um, severe issues and uh, she ended up in hospital. Um, at the end of August and was there pretty much for two weeks. Even when she came back, um, she wasn't really at the top of her game, although she ended to. And there was three more days where she just didn't really turn up in the set. Um, so because the, she, she was so central to the film, they couldn't really shoot around her. But the, the extraordinary thing was that Despite her insecurity, she was really giving the performance of her life. I thought she was wonderful. Fantastic performance. All of them were. All of them were. Amazing. Yeah, it kind of reflected very precisely the kind of problems she was having in her marriage and the views she had of herself, you know, where she thought she wasn't worth much. And um, even, even winners always lose. Quite a lot of the, quite a lot of the, 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 the lines seem to almost be written for her. But not in, not necessarily in a very kind way. No. Um, and she felt the script. She she kind of felt the script really too um, deeply. And and halfway through filming, she um, she moved out of her apartment with uh, with Arthur Miller. Well, wasn't he having an affair? Kind of the kind of the end of the marriage. Didn't he? She had a she had a fantastic. I mean, she she still understood this. She drew emotionally for a scene she didn't really play a scene for the words she played the scenes almost always entirely for the emotions so you can see in retrospect what a big draw that is in some of these resources where all the time you're looking to for the absolute heart of a scene in a way that probably other actors didn't do well she so certainly that really, that really caused a lot of um I'd have said that that would be a very hard thing to sustain, especially to such to a film such as this, 
which was very, very wrong. It really in was. Of, in terms of our character, very wrong indeed. And Thelma Ritter was in it, who's always great. Um, yeah, yeah. She, was, she was great. I thought quite a different role. To yes, not so much the snappy, snappy broad all the time. She was very yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. She was really and, good. And so it, it, then looking at kind of Clark Gable, this was him. Clark Gable had a, an absolute bonanza in the 1950s. He made more money in the 1950s than he'd ever made in his career. Because once the actors kind of went freelance and were free of the studio, everybody realized, everybody realized that he was gold dust. Audiences would flock to a Clark Gable film regardless of how good it was. Uh, can I stop you for a minute, Brian? Did he not, he did get a percentage of the film as well, of The Misfits, right? No, he, he he was on a he was on a no, no he didn't get percentage. He wasn't a big believer in percentages. He liked the money up front. Yeah, he was getting you know he was getting as highly paid as John Wayne and William Holden. So those were the other two highest paid actors in the in the movie universe at the time. Right. He he didn't rely as much on the on the um, on the percentages um, as perhaps other people. And often people made the mistake. Of, of, of um, offering, asking for a smaller salary in return for a bigger percentage, only to find that yeah. maybe didn't do as well. Or it's rolling the dice. Those clever guys in the studio were going to chisel every penny out of you. Right. You did up with very little. It's not like these days where they get they get a percentage um, ahead of uh, profit. They'll get a percentage. Tom Cruise gets a percentage from first dollar, not from first dollar of profit. So it's quite a different thing. And Gable was also, given his age, his co-stars were phenomenally, you know, people like Sophia Loren, Doris Day, now, you know, Marlon Monroe. So it wasn't like he was a fading star in any way. And he always exuded um, that sexuality. So nobody ever thought, oh, this is just an old guy. No, no. He was, I just was really blown away. So he, I didn't know this, but it makes sense. He was a three-pack-a-day smoker yeah, yeah, for 30 years. Yikes. With his, with his yes. condition, that he smoked so heavily. He smoked as much as John Wayne. You know, it was basically chain-smoking. Yeah, yuck. Uh, yes. Know, the only time he stopped smoking was when he was actually literally acting. <laughs> so unless, unless That's right. I don't even think he smoked in the film. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. How did he get along with Montgomery Clift? They didn't get along well initially. Um, he ragged Montgomery Clift quite badly, but then Montgomery Clift just ragged them back, and then they got on pretty well. They um, respected each other. Cliff, Cliff, looked a, Cliff looked a little weak guy, very vulnerable at times. Oh, yeah. He was pretty, pretty good at giving it out. He wasn't frightened. You know what? Uh, he, Tortured, maybe, but oh. a frightened guy. I have, interesting. I have to say, Brian, in this film, I didn't notice his injuries as much as the other film. I thought he looked really good in this film. Well, I, I thought he did, but also he was he was kind of playing quite an offbeat character. Mm-hmm. He wasn't the, he wasn't playing the central role, so he didn't focus as much on him. Yeah, and he was really kind of a bit barmy. Yes. You know that wonderful scene where, he, where he's got the bandies around his head? Oh, yeah, I'm trying to take it. Yeah. And he's going crazy. And it's an absolutely brilliant scene. You know, the sort of thing that drunk, you know, drunk people, they've no idea where they ended up, no idea what happened to them. They wake up and not only where am I, but what the heck's this bandage on my head? 
Well, he was so good. He also, I loved, he wasn't talking to anyone. He was on the phone, allegedly, supposedly talking to his mom. And I just thought that was really, it's such a a simple part of the film, but it was really nice. I I just thought it was very good. good. And also the fact that he was, you know, the character was just self-destructing. One rodeo, one rodeo after another. You know, the, the, the fact that even managed to put this guy in a horse seemed almost suicidal and very destructive. Yeah, they That's want kind of the role that they, those modern cowboys. And he's so tiny. The world, the world <laughs> left behind, effectively. You know, uh, the the things that. that the things they'd been praised for and honored for before, they were no longer being lauded for, and it was a very hard thing to do to to know that you're. You're, you're past it, really. Um, and all you're, all you're good for is rounding up horses and are going to end up as pet food. Oh, that was horrible. I am, I'm like Marilyn. You couldn't take me there. I was shocked when I, when I saw that. That's horrible. What they did to the horses. Oh, my God. You know, although Gable was okay, he had a quite arduous scene when he was dragged, you know, the, where he, oh. he was dragged by a horse, but point of fact, he was dragged um, along the ground by, on the, from the back of a lorry, um, doubling as, as the horse, so he was dragged for about 400 yards, which for a guy about 60, although he was fit. Yeah, was but still, it's not so that, that fit. Kind of, when you smoke yeah, three packs of cigarettes a day, and he must have crash dieted the twenty five pounds because yeah, to get that off, that's, that's not right. healthy either to do that so quickly. So yeah, yeah. Oh, that's one of the other things was that the the kind of press were were desperate for Gable and Monroe to get it together. What a fantastic story that would be! Houston was terrified that they would because then he'd have another you know movie romance in his hands, and God knows what would happen. All round, so Gable didn't like Monroe enough in that in that sense. But he was very protective of her. He, he, he you know, he would just come. He was just wait, even though he was, if you like, the bigger star. Um, which he didn't turn up. He just sat there and read a book. He never said a single thing. He never complained once about her. He never complained of her performance. If she had to do a scene, a scene again, he just let her. He just never thought it would be worth. Uh, criticizing her, and he could see the bad shape he was in. She was in, and thought this is only going to go worse if um, she's, you know, made fun of or belittled in any no, way. So no, that wouldn't help to, You know, other other stars might not have done that so well, but it was it was well cast in that sense because obviously Montgomery Clift and Monroe were effectively nursing each other throughout the film, both in character and I guess out of character because they had both similar problems to deal with and well, similar insecurities and you know it was a kind of it must have been it must have been nice for them to have somebody who they could fall back on a kindred spirit in that way but Marilyn said Montgomery Clift was the only person that was worse off than her that's right yeah, yeah. that's pretty bad poor Montgomery <laughs> Uh, and, he, and Clift was um, in a worse physical shape than than uh, Gable, um, and nobody would insure him. Oh yeah, I read yes. No, nobody would take the risk. So effectively, the the uh, studio took a gamble on, on letting him play the part at all. 
And, and of course, as you know, part of his issues were his sexuality, but also he'd had that horrible, horrific car crash. Which, yeah. Um, uh, pretty much, you know, given him, you know, done something bad to his face. Right, nerve damage, things like that. You can yeah, only yeah, do so lot, much. Lots of things you yeah. can see, and a lot of things that nobody really knew about. I mean, nobody really knew how badly injured he was. And of course, he was just kind of trying to soldier through the whole thing as though... You know, that was what movie stars had to do. You just got up, yes. <laughs> went onto your next picture and tried to, uh, you know, tried to just shake it off. And the strange thing ahead was, you know, he had three Oscar nominations. So, you know, of all the stars there, nobody would have been able to say, yeah, you're not very good. But he felt he wasn't good. He felt he was just, you know, pretending, an imposter never as good as he wanted to be and where he where kind of um, Houston would give Marlon Monroe a lot of leeway in terms of um, shooting a scene again especially if Paula Strasberg kind of felt it should be done again he just said yeah and you go do it but with Montgomery Clift he was very careful to try and do just one take because he knew if it went on it would possibly just get worse and worse because uh, Clifton would get much more more worried about what he was doing. These these actors weren't the kind of actors who these days might just say, "I'll do this twenty different ways." They were always trying to pin pin down the scene with every take. They weren't trying to say, "Well, let me do this a different way. Let me do that. Let me talk fast." Let me, you know the way that modern actors might do because that's kind of the way they were trained. Uh, uh, actors of his generation were trained to get it done as soon as possible All right. and take move on. Learn your lines, Sam, and yeah, that's it. So it's kind of a different, a different uh, kind of thing. So, in, 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 and Cliff was also badly injured in this film. Um, uh, you probably noticed at the end of the film he's uh, not wearing gloves when he's kind of trying yes. to horses. Mm-hmm. They made a they made a goof um, in the. Uh, what do you call it? The, the, well, the trailer has not made goofs, um, and he was supposed to be wearing gloves, um, and he forgot to put them on, and they shot the first scene with him not on it, and then they couldn't find a reason for him to wear the gloves. I'd have thought he would have noticed, honestly. He would have noticed you don't have gloves in one bit, and then you get gloves in another. I'd have thought nobody would have noticed except the people that these days look out for those things. Um, but no, he was too much of a professional to, to actually wear the gloves. So he was dragged, and he stands badly burned by the rope. So it's quite a quite a tough, you know, a tough call for virtually everybody on the side. What about Eli Wallach? The guy who came, apart from Gable, who came to the, the set completely puffed up with his own ability, and right. rightly so was John Houston, because he was effectively a Hollywood royalty. Um, he was always in demand. He could take his pick of the movies. People were always sending him scripts. He said that when he was on this movie, he read a script a day. That was how many scripts he was sent. And he, wow, know, a script a day. That's a lot. He was very highly paid. He lived in Ireland most of the year, far away from the kind of hurly burly of Hollywood. So he didn't get caught up in any of that Hollywood mania. 
he made films on his own on his own terms and he knew exactly what he wanted and how to get it. And one of the interesting things I always like about directors like Houston is when they're shooting scenes you don't see this endless cutting back and forth between characters as you do these days, which I always think is kinda of lazy. You always seen them in a scene with three or four people and the camera doesn't really move much. The characters are, are positioned in a way that, that, that gives gives the scene its flavour. It worked. But then he just liked the scene to he just liked the people to act their way in the scene. He always thought he always said the camera will find the best part of that scene. So you point the camera, the actors act, and whoever's got the most important element in that scene, the camera will find without any of the fancy. Um, cutting back and forth. Yeah, Brian, I want to ask you this. Um, Marilyn fantasized that Clark Gable was her father. She didn't know who her father yeah, was. Yeah, that was that was yeah that was that was very true because she didn't know who it was. Yeah, and and there was kind of was there, I think mean, there was some kind of evidence to point that way, but I'm never I don't think MD found it one way or the other. Yes, I. I don't know. I and when I don't think she would have had a romance with him, even if he was uh, attracted to her, because it's pretty common knowledge that she did not have the best hygiene, which is a symptom of depression. You know what I mean? Yeah, you yeah. just yeah. you're not exactly gonna take five showers a day when you're feeling like blah. <laughs> yeah, that was that, yeah. that was kind of what turned him off. Yeah, I don't. He, he was never he was never noted for on screen affairs, but that's not to say he didn't have them. He did in the beginning. He did. Yeah, that's right. He right. definitely he, did. Once he was kind of, you know, moving on. Right. He seemed to, he seemed to like living home and, and you know. Um, Grow up a little bit. Act like a grown up. Rather than the roistering, high drinking, right. hand drinking, womanizing thing that a lot of the guys did. Right. Yeah, it was, a, it was always an interesting. Uh, I think people just kind of read into it automatically, gave on and roll. Something's got to happen without thinking they're two different people. Nothing's going to happen. I didn't think anything would happen to me. I just didn't, um, you know, they didn't even kiss, did they, in the movie? I think they just hugged. I don't even know if they kissed. Yeah, yeah. No, no. They only had that scene, one scene in, in the bedroom. No, they didn't. That was one. Of the, I thought that was one of the good things about the film. Yes. That a lot of a lot of the stuff was just subtext. You never saw a lot of overt stuff, and it was maybe the dialogue, or or you know when 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 she starts making you know doing the vegetable patch and the flowers of the garden. You think, well, that's quite nice. She's a different woman. This is not the woman we thought she was. You know, just trying to make things a bit more homely in a place that was never going to be homely because it was just unfinished. Right. That was Eli Wallach's place. It was bizarre of reasons. How did Eli Wallach fit with the crew? Yeah, I liked liked him. He'd been a big friend of uh, Marlon Monroe uh, back in the day. He was one of the actor's studio dudes, right? In one of his plays, because he was a bigger star in Broadway than he was in the movies in the 1950s. And they'd hit it off. And they used to go dancing together. Uh, for a couple of years, they were good buddies. Then she kind of drifted away, or he drifted away. Um, and by the time um, he, she turned up in the set, um, she was a completely different person to the woman he'd remembered. He so sad, shocked. right? That's so sad. Yeah, yeah, he was quite shocked. I mean, there was some strange, you know, he, I'm never quite sure. He seemed an, a nice enough guy. Uh, but he and, he and Gable hit it off badly as well <laughs> to start with. Partly, partly Gable's fault. Gable apparently had a, um, a, a thing where 
kind of before the movie started, he, he wanted to hear how the how the act, other actors were going to act. Like the method acting? Kind of rehearsing something with him. He sent along his assistant to get, to get people at Eli Warren to read a scene with the assistant. And then presumably the assistant reported back. I don't know what he said. So um, Gable hadn't met Waller when this happened. Uh, so when Waller and Gable did meet, well, it was extremely frosty to them. And they were both, you know, Gable not knowing what was going on was probably just as frosty mind. Sniffing each other out. <laughs> yeah, take John Houston to chuck, um, a, you know, a couple of glasses of Jack Daniels down them to, to get them to kind of warm up towards each other. So it was kind of an odd uh, thing. And the other problem was that because of the illnesses and the, all that stuff, the, 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 budget, the budget didn't actually go out of control that much, but the production did. It, kind of, it was meant to be a 50-day shoot and it ended up being 90 days. Wow, that's amazing. It's almost double. Um, but the budget only went up about half a million, which seems quite odd. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of surmising that the contracts always said you're here until the movie finishes. Unless you, I mean, um, Gable famously got an extra week's pay, but nobody else was noticeably getting an extra week's pay. So it must just have been in the contract, or maybe they kind of expected it. Kind of an odd thing. But the, I mentioned at the beginning that, that um, you know, Arthur Miller um, was kind of proved to be a, an unexpected problem. And the reason was that he was at that time I guess you would say one of the two most famous playwrights in the world Tennessee Williams being the other one who's the top dog so if he wants to change something or tell somebody to do something different they do it so when he came onto the movies he doesn't realise that's not the way this works so he was kind of had that kind of very high authorial attitude Mm -hmm. towards the movie and he thinks he knows better than people who've been in movies all their lives. Yeah. These... If, you know, have you maybe not thought of this kind of attitude? But you so know what it really, is? He really irked people. I'd be irked. And, you know, it's just like watching over you and, and being critical. And you just want to do your work. You know, you'd like yeah, it. You've right. got your yeah. script. You don't sit there every day. And how did that work out with he and Marilyn just not, you know, kaput? Yeah, you know, yeah, how uncomfortable yeah, that so must have been. Was, the other thing that annoyed people was he was constantly rewriting, which you don't, you, you know, that's one of the reasons why writers are never in sets, because they want to change things. And it was driving Clark Gable bonkers. He eventually refused to do any more, to do any more rewrites. Good for him, because that's too much. Like you said, acting yeah. on the stage is so much different than doing movies. So and he, di- he didn't understand what actors were doing when they acted or what the writers were doing. So the scene where, uh, where Monroe is, um, you know, starting to screaming about them being murderers and she's kind of, it's kind of a long shot. He, Miller was complaining about that, saying like that's that. Oh, when she's calling them murderers? And, and um, John Houston was patiently explaining, though, that's not the way... That's not what we're trying to do. And he just didn't understand technical things, right. like lighting. He didn't understand how, how Gable acted. So he was kind of getting in on everybody's uh, way. But him being there, the only thing that he did, the, the ping pong scene, the paddle boarding scene, oh my. Was, that was improvised after he saw Marlon Monroe do that. Could she do it all that time, or was she for the takes? Yeah, she did that in real life. Yeah, I thought that was a fantastic but scene. That was. For an actress to just do. She took it from the kids. completely out of her, 
she was Sam fine. Sam Finistans? It you was. You couldn't find Catherine Hepburn or no. Elizabeth Taylor doing something as frivolous as that and doing it with such exuberance. Yeah, she was very childlike. I mean, Marilyn loved animals and she loved children and she could relate. Yeah. That was her yeah, real yeah, thing. Strange, uh, yeah, just very strange. Um, the way it all worked out for it, her. So, yeah, she, it was she, an innocent scene, nice. Brian. It was much more supportive. Yeah, the it was such an innocent scene, the paddle, until the guy starts yeah. smacking her butt. It's, yeah. <laughs> that was disgusting, yeah. Yeah. but it made the point that people are gross sometimes, yeah. let's face it. Yeah, yeah. But good for her. I mean, so, I so, couldn't so do so that. The, so the other character who was getting in his way was this producer called Frank Taylor, who'd never been a good basically got the job because he'd been a buddy of Arthur Miller's from these very early days before Arthur Miller was a successful playwright. And he'd been Arthur Miller's publisher of very unsuccessful books. Um, and he, he'd worked for four years in Hollywood, but only produced one like minor B film. So he wasn't really a, a producer, you would think, let's put this guy on this heavyweight production. But he got the job, and then he basically just spent all his time fielding fights between Miller and Houston and, you know, everybody, and getting primarily in the way. The one good thing he did was bring in the, the Magnum photographers, who, who, who basically, a team of photographers from the Magnum uh, Photographic Agency, like Inge Marath and people like that, arrived on set, and they just took it in turns uh, to, to take photographs of the whole thing. There's a wonderful book. Yeah, that came out of it was just um, candid photographs. They so, must have gotten some actors. great yeah, ones. It's a wonderful book. I've got to ask you: wasn't one of the photographers? Uh, she became ended up being Arthur Miller's wife. That's right. That's after right. Marilyn, yeah, yeah. And you wonder if that's what all. <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> you know, I, I don't. Even pick up I know. I mean, he didn't give it much of a break, did he? It's like no, okay, no. smack, smack. Got, he had to have somebody in the bullpen ready to go for him. So I don't know about that. But and Taylor I, was kind of like a referee in a war zone. He'd been he'd been thrown to such a deep end that he might as well have been come out at the at the south pole. And, and a more experienced producer would just have barred Arthur Miller from the set. Would just say, "You can't come on. You're done. Go home uh, because you're caught, you're doing nothing but trouble." And the only time that Taylor tried to kind of stick up for his own self or what he thought was important to the film was the one time where he made a catastrophically wrong decision, um, artistically wrong, every, wrong in every way, which was to, which is, there was a, a scene, the scene where they had in the bedroom, one take of that, infamously known as take seven, that Madame Monroe had shown a little bit too much of her breasts. Um, and when it came to the editing, um, Frank Taylor wanted to keep it in. Um, the movie was already in trouble with the production code, which is, if you know, was originally the, the American censorship oh, system. Big time, the, yeah. American censorship system. You had to submit your script before the movie was made. Then the production code turned it down and said the movie, you know, we can't, we can't endorse this script, we can't endorse your movie because it's, you know, people having affairs and not being punished for it. So Taylor reckoned that if they weren't going to get an endorsement, a seal of approval from the production code, they might as well go the whole hog. So he wanted to include this scene in it, um, which would have ended up being, the film would have ended up being more famous for Marilyn Monroe appearing nude than the quality of the film itself. So there was a huge battle about this. 
Um, and eventually, uh, John Houston intervened and just said, well, I'm not having any of it. Um, you know, forget it, go home. Uh, we're going to cut the film the way I want it. So that's kind of the way it was cut. It didn't need it, frankly. You don't need to see that. No, no, that's what he was. That's what he was saying. You don't need this. You know, it's they're not, so good. You just don't. It's not that kind of movie. Yeah. And, and we don't want to kind of. And, and luckily, it, you know, her last film didn't become this film where she just showed a bit of nudity, which would have, you know, undercut her um, career entirely. So it was kind of kind of an odd. Um, thing. But the problem was once, of course, that um, you know, as you know, Clark Gable died shortly after the film was was finished, um, and so they had a movie with a dead star. And oddly enough, movies with dead stars didn't go down well with the public. You'd have thought they would. Well, I know they but did. Jimmy Cooper's last film went by, went down poorly. Bogart's last film went down poorly. Maybe it wasn't that great a film, too. Just but something I, at that time. But it's they, honestly... So they had a big problem how to, how to launch this movie. And because they didn't realise in effect how, um, how dark it was, um, given that Monroe's last pictures had been a musical and, and you know, a comedy... Gable's last pictures have been actions at the westerns. They were kind of expecting from the title and maybe the fact that it was a it was a western, something with a lot more action in it. So when they got the final film, even though they'd approved the screenplay, they were kind of shocked. Um, so they kind of did a, a strange thing. <clears throat> well, well, the way films are released these days. <clears throat> In what's called wide release, that just wasn't the thing back then. If you put a movie in wide release, uh -huh. maybe in those days 500 or 1,000 theatres all at once, you were basically saying, this is a dud, and let's get it in there and out before Andy realises how bad it is. So it was usually, it was usually those kind of monster pictures or, or ex exploitation pictures that went down that route. But um, United Artists decided that the best way to deal with this film was get it out there and get it in, sell Gable and Monroe as quickly as possible before people realised that, you know, it wasn't a Western, it wasn't a comedy, it wasn't a musical. So, kind of, that's what they did. Um, and it kind of did OK in the box office, but it never really made any money. Um, and it really wasn't well re very well reviewed either. There wasn't anybody coming out saying this is the best film these guys have ever made. Well, I think that happened later, right? Because like when I saw yeah, it, I told you years ago. A long, long while. Even, even after, you know, the big Marlon Monroe kind of revivals kicked in, mm -hmm. this was never included in it. It was always some like a heart and, you know, the, the early musicals or maybe even the Asphalt Jungle, but it was never it was never this one. It seemed too odd. I don't know what it was because I think, I think everybody... Watching it, the same reaction as I did first time I saw it, that was it doesn't really fit in any of these guys' careers. It didn't even fit in Ed Houston's career in that sense. No. So it was kind of an odd, an odd film. But then when you watched it much later, you thought, "Good God, this is just amazing!" That how happened to me. Turning this performance, how did this film? I loved create? it. Like, it's a film about, you know, it would, it would maybe be made these days with kind of, you know, Dustin Hoffman or Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, who play these kind of characters day in, day out. But not, you wouldn't be having, I don't know, you know, 
Tom Cruise. You can imagine it would be the equivalent of having Tom Cruise playing that character. That's what it would be. He couldn't get away with it. <laughs> he couldn't. I found starring Tom Cruise and Julia Roberts. Oh, they couldn't do it. They should yeah. never remake no, the Misfits. Yeah, I just don't think so because no. these it's people were all very hard to. They were damaged. Uh, so uh, it's very brave. It was a very brave um, decision to to make the bracket. I loved it. Like I said, you know, in the beginning, I was like, Ugh, I, I don't, you know, I wasn't paying attention to it. I was too young. And then when I went through my own things and, and you see the vulnerability that each of them yeah. had and you relate and so much to it. Somebody like Gable, who was, you know, that his character was completely vulnerable. Mm-hmm. He had nowhere to go. He had no real job. He, he covered it over by saying, well, I don't really want a real job. I'll just have a few beers and, and you know, every now and then we'll go up to the hills and catch a few steer and, and poor things. Oh, you know, given you what you must have done thirty years ago when you were a proper cowboy ranching and all that stuff. These guys would really be acting if they remade it because I cannot yeah. see anybody at all doing these parts like these wonderful people that starred in The Misfits because they were really, I mean, I cried too. You know, I just loved yeah, this it's movie. Very sad. And I think also Montgomery Cliffs, you know, that was a different, you know, we've seen movies about rodeo guys since then and they've always been, they've always started at kind of the beginning of middle of their career. Right. Not at the very end when really they're just struggling to steal a horse. It was so horrible, though. You know, so they did it. Clark's wife was pregnant yeah. when he started the film, or did she get yeah. pregnant while he was doing the film? Yeah, yeah. Do you know? No, I don't. I don't know. I just know that it was. Yeah, she was eventually pregnant. Yeah, I don't know. He was. He was kind of when he got to one of the reasons why he got so fat in Italy was he was just enjoying being a family man. He'd taken his kids. You know, he was enjoying being a family man, probably for the first time in his life. Who, Clark? He never was a family man. He never got a chance to be. No, no, exactly. He was working so hard half the time. I think these are probably vulnerable people playing vulnerable people. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yes, definitely. The screen personas and the facades, they were underneath it. Very vulnerable people being given the chance to play very vulnerable people. And it was, yeah, Marilyn felt it was so, I think it was so raw for her because she knew those feelings. She was having those feelings. She was doing it. And I think she did. I think this is her best movie role as well. My dear. She was really, all of them, I just was blown away. And it's so funny how I saw it so long ago and I'm like, I hate this movie. And it was dark. (laughs) <laughs> literally dark you know lighting was dark everything was just dark and I'm like yeah. you know I hadn't been to forest and <laughs> I was just a kid nothing at a, you know it was just like la di da da and um, now I'm not la di da da I'm like wow <laughs> you know I've seen this I know this stuff and it's um, I highly recommend it to anyone who wants to watch you know like he said it's not a musical it's not a comedy it's not a western it, it's yeah. basically don't you think it's just like a human yeah. A human story, just about people, you know, just coming together and ter- yeah. and meeting and, and and just being human. And yeah, they just happen to be cowboys, so they get this these 
do these horrible things to horses that I think I, I had to close I, my I, eyes. I had in my stand for about a year. I mean, I watch a movie a night, as you know. Yes. I review a movie a night. Um, and I, I had it in my stand for a year. I just kept on putting it off. Oh, I don't really, you know. Isn't that funny? So and then when I saw it, I'm good God, why did you take so long to see this fantastic movie? I know, I felt the same way. Because I was like, yeah. I'm so glad you came on because I probably <laughs> never would have watched it again. Yeah. Honestly. And I am so glad I did because. Yeah. Everything I missed the first time, I totally got a hundred times, a hundred. Um, Clark, uh, there was a lot of heat going on there, and I can't say that he was really doing well. I, he probably didn't feel his best. I don't think Marilyn felt her best. I think the only really healthy one was Eli Wallach. I think Thelma yeah. Ritter died um, yeah, not that right. long after yeah. she had cancer, and um, the only one he lived a long time was Eli Wallach. But yeah, that's yeah, so. He had a good life. He yes. Had a very long life as well. It's so poignant when you watch the film because you know what happens after the film and how yeah, damaged yeah. these people are, and it's just kind of an ending, you know. And you hope yeah. it's a happy ending for all of them. You but can, we kind of thought, though, I kind of felt that the movie, you know, if, they, if you'd seen the after part of the movie, you'd have seen Gable and Monroe kind of, you know. Shuffling along together quite happily. Yes. We're, we're okay. And uh, I thought Clifton would have died. Oh. This character would be dead long dead. But I thought, I thought those two would kind of, you know, help each other along, be quite happy, find solace in each other, um, accept their vulnerabilities and just kind of move on. And that was something Clark didn't like to show, you know, because he was like, manly man, you know, smoke, smoke, manly, give me a, give me a whiskey. You know, that kind of manly yeah, man yeah, person. Sure. Yeah. And um, he died, they finished shooting, it went all over, it was really hot. They sweat yeah. like monsters there, they were sweating, and that's not healthy yeah. for guys, yeah. they got dehydrated, whatever. And when it finally wrapped... He died, like, so close to it being done. Yeah. What was it, two weeks? Yeah, under two weeks. Yeah. And his wife was pregnant, and um, some people blamed Marilyn for his death, which I just don't think that was right see, to do. I don't think she had anything to do with it, and some people, but, but you know, he, he passed his medical, um, but as you say, he was smoking 60 a day. Um, That's a lot, and I'm sure they weren't he, filtered. Sometimes, obviously, they fuss these medicals just so they can be made. Right. Um, there are fair cynicism there amongst the Hollywood community, but it did just seem to be one of those things. You know, heart attacks are often quite the blue. It's not something that necessarily has been building up and building up. But she it, felt she did. She felt that she caused it, you know, that she helped with it. And then there was a thing that his wife thought she did it, but I don't I believe that at all. I believe, you know, Marilyn... If he could be patient and read and do that stuff and try to get into his own zone and not get into that Marilyn's late, Marilyn, you know, just do that. But like you said, he he lost 25 pounds very quickly. He still drank all, he he smoked all those cigarettes and he was in that heat and and it it just... I think possibly the fact that they were shooting for 90 days instead of 50 in that heat might have contributed towards, you know, somebody being more unwell than the otherwise might have been. But it's nothing to say that, you know, two months after finishing the movie, he would have dropped dead. No, not at all. And nobody would have been blamed. No, and shouldn't have been blamed. No. Um, also, 
That was Marilyn's was last make, film. He's going to make a pic, the, the Common Sheriffs. That's what he's going to make. That was his next picture, the one with John Wayne. Huh. So he was raring to go, and then, no. Yeah, yeah. He was very young, wasn't he? Only 59. Yeah, come the 59, 60, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, I'm trying to think about the question I was going to ask you. Uh, with Marilyn, that was her last film. She was supposed to do Something's Got to Give with Dean Martin, but she got fired from that. And then Montgomery Cliff did a few others. Freud and he, he died about 65 he did a very good film I saw him in a film called um, The Counterfeit Traitor which was very good no sorry not that that's William Holden um, the one where he's the kind of it's a spy thing I think it was treat. called um, Traitor I think it was called Traitor or something yeah, like that was, he was very you know he was very good he, he, the screen he, he knew how to hold the screen he was a you know charismatic very on screen very, he very. Didn't have to do anything. Um, Isn't that the character just the camera just honed in on him? He was Amazing. wonderful, and with him, it, it just you know how sad that is. So that was Marilyn's yeah. last film. He did a few more, but he just went downhill. He just kept going yeah. more downhill and more downhill and more downhill. Yeah. Even though she was doing other movies, yeah. um, he worked with Houston again, right? He did uh, yeah, Freud. He did Freud with yeah. Houston. Yeah. So I mean, it was really. I was so honestly thank you for saying you're coming on the show because I wouldn't have watched it again. Um, I I loved it and all the tidbits behind it are so fascinating and yeah. how they all worked and and they all worked. It, it they were just yeah, such a yeah, great yeah, yeah. team. I, I love doing all those bits. I was quite surprised with my blog how popular the yeah. scenes uh, sections are. Yes. Um, which I kind of do maybe one a week. Yes. Um, and they become very popular. Uh, well, I'm surprised. I, I, it's, it's funny, I mean, you'll be the same when you do your uh, your broadcast, you know, which ones turn out to be more popular than the others. Right. For a long time, my top-ranked movie that I'd reviewed was a film called Jessica with Angie Dickinson made in 1962. Oh, I never saw that film. Don't ask, don't ask me why. Don't ask me why. Before that, it was The Secret Ways, a Richard Woodmark picture of an adaptation of a, an Alison McCrane thriller. That was the one that everybody went to. I have no idea why. Well, they. <laughs> but your blog <laughs> is wonderful. And somebody once said to me that, that nobody, that a lot of people who, that, that uh, people reading blogs are very interested in old films yes. and old reviews because you don't see them so much. No. And, and the reviews, that, although there was a lot of uh, critics around in the 60s, if you look at the reviews online, you see that they've got maybe 80 words right. on the misfits. You know, unless you, were, unless you were working for the New Yorker and you had like, you know, a thousand or two thousand words. Right. Tell everybody then. Most of the major reviewers have very few words. Yes. And nowadays. So they had the very succinct, punchy, you know, tell the story as quickly as possible. It stinks. <laughs> it so stinks. There's no time to um, actually talk about anything else. No, but I want people to go to your blog because, like I said, it's like a treasure trove of 60 stuff. Um, tell everybody the name of it, Brian. It's called The Magnificent 60s. Yes, and I will. And it is The Magnificent 60s, and there are so many great reviews. Stark Fear, watch it, everybody, if you can find yeah, it. Stark, and, and the other one I, I watched, uh, the Sam Fuller one, 
And I always recommend Naked Kiss. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, boy. So it's stunner. Woof. It had all this. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. You... And it's fantastic for me. I mean, I, I grew up in the 60s, but I, I lived in a time where there wasn't a cinema, strangely enough. Um, so I kind of came to movies quite late. And, and if you went, started really good to movies in the 1970s, 1960s movies weren't around to be seen. They just disappeared. Right. So you kind of catch up with them much later. And now that I, a lot of the books I've written have been about the 1960s. And I kind of got myself into <clears throat> looking at other things. And then I just started thinking I would maybe just like to write about movies of the 1960s and pretty much just that. As you know, I do I do um, new movies. I go, to the, I go to the cinema every Monday mm-hmm. and see two or three movies of whatever's on. Um, and I kind of review some of them. Great new movie just came out called See How They Run, which is very funny. Who's in that? Of 1950s detective stories. It's absolutely brilliant. Very funny. Well, it disappeared by now because they brought it out on a big release, but they should have just brought it out on a platform release and let it, let it find an audience. So I, I kind of just, but mostly I write about 1960s films and it's great. I just love doing it. The Naked Kiss, I haven't read your, you wrote about it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I have to find that because that movie, I tell you guys, watch it. It's kind of, uh, it can be campy at times, but it is, whoa, heavy duty, whoa. Yeah, yeah. Really? I, and, oh, I mean, I hadn't realized what the story was about. I tend not to I tend not to read reviews before I watch it. Yeah. So I kind of come into it quite, so I didn't realize what the theme was. And when it came, I went, oh, my God. It's horrific. Yes, it really it's was. Theme, but the main thing is that this woman had been a sex worker trying to get back on her feet and managing it against all the odds. You know, you just keep on thinking, this film is going to topple, she's going to topple, and yet she doesn't, just through pure, pure strength of character. An amazing, Beverly, amazing performance. You never see her in much. Constant Tower. She, she did um, a lot of Sam Fuller's. She did like other show, other movies for him. And um, yeah, 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 that's right. John Carter. Yeah. yeah. So she was really. Oh, shoot, Kelly, she played. That's another one I highly recommend. So I'm going to link up Brian's blog because you're going to want to read it. It's really good. He does have reviews of newer movies. and um, But the ones I love, of course, are the later ones, the 60s ones, because I can't find it. And I just spent such a long time reading it, and I have so much more to read. So thank you so much for doing the blog, Brian, because I'm really enjoying it and getting a lot of... Uh, good info out of it i really really love it and also i'm going to link you up to brian's books he's done a lot of books and um you guys can check those out and brian i hope you had a good time yeah good that's great thank you very much i had a wonderful time too and thank you everybody till next time thank you brian brian hanan our Scottish couldn't he, wouldn't he, didn't he? That was wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>